She looked over my contract and as she was looking over my contract, the publisher folded <laughs> and I was just really demoralized. This was during those two years I wasn't writing and just being like, I'm just not going to have a book. Hi, welcome. Welcome to Writing Stories, your spot for conversations with contemporary authors about the struggles and triumphs of writing and publishing. Hi, Rachel. Hi. My guest today is Rachel Yoder. Rachel edits Draft, the Journal of Process, with her co-founder, Mark Polanzak. And she is the author of Night Bitch, which was selected as an Indie Next Pick, Best Book of the Year by Esquire and Vulture, and was a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award for Debut Fiction and the VCU Cabell First Novelist Award. In addition to being one of my all-time favorite pieces of art, it's seriously, for me, it's up there with like Alvin Ailey's Revelations and Mel Yavin's paintings of peasant women, or like the exploding piano at the Tate. I don't even know if that's still there, but like 20 years ago, I saw this... I guess it was like a sculpture, an installation. I don't know. But at like regular intervals, a piano would like fall from the ceiling and explode. And like pieces of it would go shooting out from the center. And it would make this giant cacophonous sound like a piano falling from like a four-story window. (laughs) So for me, Night Pitch is really in that category of pieces of art that have just brought me so much joy that they remain these kind of shining moments in my life. So it was a really big deal to me to be able to talk to Rachel Yoder. For your sake, listeners, I try not to fangirl, you know, too hard. We talk about Night Bitch, obviously, and we also talk about the particularly destabilizing combination of professional disappointment and new motherhood. And we talk about how to nurture student writers and what it's like to watch your life being made into a movie. Does Iowa feel like home now? You know, I was just thinking about that the other day. It still sort of feels like it doesn't feel temporary, but it feels adopted or something. Okay. Um, Yeah, because I'm from Ohio. And when I go back there, it feels like, oh, this is where I belong. Like, I mean, I do feel like I belong here too, but there's something about where you grew up, right? And like, this is a built home. And then Ohio is like the womb. It's like the (laughs) the original home. Yeah. Do you feel any kind of desire to go back to the original home? I mean, so I grew up in a Mennonite uh, intentional community. And what makes me the saddest is that my, although my child is having a great childhood and upbringing, it's really different than mine was. And I really like when we go back there and visit and I see him playing with my friend's kids, I'm like, oh, I wish he could like have this childhood because it was so beautiful. What do you wish that he could have from your childhood? I mean, I wish he could spend the entire day in the woods, like independently without an adult, like watching or worrying and like. I wish that there were like deer skulls and deer spines like lying in the lawn. I would, you know, like I wish for me, it was just like this. And I see the kids there and they're just so free. Like they just, their parents go and work at like the brew pub they run. And the kids, I was like, well, what do you do for childcare? And my friend's like, they just do whatever they like. We're in the woods. Like they're Uh not going to get, yeah, nothing bad can happen. And 
And I'm like, yeah, I remember that. Like I would just be left alone for an entire summer day. And I wish he had that freedom, you know? Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's huge. A connection to the natural world. What did reading and writing look like for you as a child? Mm, Okay, well, one of my earliest memories before kindergarten is sitting on a couch with my mother And she had this series of yellow paperback kind of pamphlets, and they were learn to read books. So I entered kindergarten when I was four, in part because I had this mother who would sit with me and do this. And it was, I just loved it. Like I loved having my mom to myself, and I loved that she was so proud of me for, you know, how good I was at reading. And I also really loved reading. So my kind of initial experience with reading is just this, like, isn't it funny? It's like this deep maternal, like connection with my mom. I remember in first grade, we had a typewriter in the room and I would I would like pretend to type on it really fast. And all the kids were like, oh my gosh, can you really type that fast? And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, but like, like that was something I really like to do to pretend I was like writing. And um, so I guess it's always kind of been there. Um, and like I said, I mean, I grew up at the den of a dirt road in a Mennonite commune. My mom was a librarian. So my summers, a lot of my summers were just reading books. I would read like a book a day. And there, because there was a lot of quiet, a lot of solitude. And I think also from reading all those books, I became a very big dreamer. I had a lot of hopes and dreams for myself outside of the Mennonite commune, out in the world. I was very interested in. New York City. I was very interested in the in the world at large. So they really were kind of a lifeline to society. And especially in, in high school when my dad was reading Harper's and the New Yorker, I would read those every time a new one came in because I was like, oh, this is what like pe- real people are doing out in the world. And how did your community relate to that sense of you as a dreamer and <clears throat> excited about the world outside of your Mennonite community? I don't think my like my parents, especially my dad, quite knew what to do with me. I was of such a different time and place than he was. Mm-hmm. He had grown up you know, on an Amish farm. He's from the silent generation. He's not even a boomer. And I think he just sort of watched me and didn't know what to make of me and was like very proud of me, but didn't have a lot of advice or maybe support to offer just because he hadn't had the same experiences or the same hopes and dreams. Although he did have a really formative experience out of the ordinary when he was 18, he left the farm and he went to Europe for two years. There was this program called PAX and it was alternative military service for the Korean War. And so he went there and rebuilt, bombed out World War II churches in Austria. And that, that I think really changed him and probably made him more open to, to, you know, me wanting to go to college and Washington, D.C. and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. 
that makes sense that it kind of opened up his world a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, we're going to talk about Night Bitch. I really love this book. Not only did I feel like very seen by it, but I felt like it was showing me a new way to see myself. And I also really liked the way that you created the text that Night Bitch refers to for support, a sort of faux nonfiction text within the broader story written by the mysterious Wanda White. And then it's like this smart, very truthful perspective on motherhood that is portrayed in such a like fresh and playful way. And for me, like coming at these heavy topics from that playful perspective made, it was just like really valuable and I loved it. (laughs) I just loved it. So I'm really, really stoked to be able to talk to you today. I know you have two MFAs, one from the University of Iowa and one from the University of Arizona. And I'm curious about your experience with those programs. I'm really, really glad I came to Iowa because the nonfiction writing program here, which is what I came for, really opened up possibility for me. Um, And I don't know that all nonfiction programs would have done that, but the way that this one was framed, um, the way we talked about the essay and what is an essay... Um, what is artful, uh, you know, what can you put in a piece of writing and, and still have it work? There was this focus on form and kind of questioning form that I found very helpful and motivational. So you said you learned more about what your project was, like what you want to do as an artist. Can you say more about that? Yeah. So I think I entered writing fiction the way a lot of people do through sort of mid-century realist short stories. Raymond Carver is who comes to mind. And so I was writing, you know, emotionally realistic, straight, pretty straight ahead short fiction, which was fine. I'm glad I did that. I mean, I still do that. But then there was also this urge that came up during my first MFA where I was writing things that were more imaginative, um, fanciful, what my professors would have called not serious. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had professors who who were schooled at the Iowa Writers Workshop in the 60s and 70s, and they had a very particular way of thinking about what fiction was and what fiction was worth writing. And so I got this sense of, oh, well, the stuff I want to do is not as valuable and it's kind of silly and and feminine maybe even. So I didn't feel like I could really explore that. When I got to Iowa, there was talk about, okay, well, what can an essay be? Can it be, can it be imaginative? Can it be made up in, in some ways? Can it, can it be playful? And none of that was, you know, we didn't talk about being playful at University of Arizona. Huh. Um, and so it was bringing in, I think a lot of questions that we ask of poetry, actually, it was a, it was a program that was sort of adjacent to poetry and saying, you know, what are all the different sort of modes we can use? And I saw, oh, I can write stuff that is storytelling, that is sort of essayistic and, and just saying what I think. It can be completely imaginative and made up, and I can use that as a sort of rhetorical device. And so, yeah, it just sort of 
blasted open the possibilities of writing for me. You said that at Iowa, you guys talked about what was artful. This idea that we were making art and that we got to define what was artful and what we thought art was, was very um, beneficial for me. And I felt welcomed into a community of experimentation and freedom and seeking. We were all sort of on the same journey toward, okay, what is an essay? What is artful? And what is our own iteration of an essay? It wasn't, oh, here is what an essay is. I mean, we did get a history of the essay, but there was this permission for us to find our own work, which I didn't feel like I had permission to do that when I was in a fiction MFA. Mm. Um, And that's, I think that's, I mean, if a program is like that, I think it's a really great program because then you get 12 really distinct and amazing writers at the end of, you know, every class. Yeah. Right. Okay. So here's like a real a devil's advocate perspective. Yes. So let's say that there's two ways of thinking about teaching writing. One is that we're teaching people how to do the things that other people have done, sort of, right? Like to analyze texts that have been successful and to emulate those. And one is to help people find their voices. And what if somebody was to say, well, one way of instruction is good for most people. And then for the true creative geniuses, those are the people that we help find their own voice. How would you, which is not, this is not a perspective that I ascribe to, (laughs) but how would you speak back to that? I would say that sounds like it's coming from the perspective of the privileged and the people who have the power. I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been on the job market for teaching. And so, you know, my teaching philosophy really does circle around those two things. How can, how can we help young writers do their best work and how can we help them do their own work? Mm-hmm. And I think that the, I mean, my philosophy is teaching is that it's my job over and over again to give the power they think I hold over their work back to them and to say, I don't know how you do your best work. What do you think about this? Which is very different than the the writer's workshop model. You know, like what we were given where you can't talk during workshop and your professor just rips apart your story. I once had a professor say, this isn't a story. <laughs> really? To you? Yeah. It isn't even a story. And I was like, thanks. So... <laughs> I just think it's very brash of me to assume I know precisely what another writer's project is. I probably don't fully understand it. They probably don't fully understand it. And as a teacher, I feel like I'm a guide, you know, like, how can I guide you closer to that? And do you have, could you give one answer to that question? How can you guide a writer closer to discovering their own project? I I try to teach process. That's one of my current projects is how do you teach process? Mm -hmm. How do you help students figure out where to find inspiration? Mm -hmm. How do you guide them toward an aesthetic philosophy? I mean, I have my students write an aesthetic philosophy at the end of course. 
I also have them grade their own workshop pieces because that's part of being an artist is evaluating your own work. I want to ask you about your own process and about, you know, your sources of inspiration for Nightbit. Yeah, this is always a funny question. So I had been, you know, I got my two MFAs. I was really in the writing world. I had my community of writers here in Iowa City. And then I had my son, which, you know, having a child completely changes everything. And I stopped writing for two years and it was, I had never not written since I was 21, right? So I stopped writing for two years and was in sort of the night bitch years Mm -hmm. of utterly losing myself, but utterly being in love with my child and, you know, loving spending time with him at the same time feeling so isolated. And I was really unhappy. I was really unhappy not writing, but I could, I didn't want to write. I didn't even want to write. There was like nothing there. All of it was going toward parenting. So I think, I think what kind of sent me over the edge was the 2016 election when Trump came into office and I was so angry and I had, you know, I had been already angry and I realized then like I needed something, I needed a strategy for dealing with my feelings. Like I was going to self-destruct if I didn't do something. And my husband's like, you need to write. And I'm like, yes, that is what I need to do. I didn't really know what I was doing. I think when I started and then like happened upon this kind of like, oh, night bitch, a mom who turns into a dog. And it felt like you said earlier, it felt fun. Well, at the same time, true. And I don't think I could have written something serious because I was so angry and so lonely and desperate that writing that in a straightforward way would have been really heavy. So I needed something that was fun and ridiculous, but at the same time, you know, kind of thrumming with this truth. So I just, I started, you know, leaving for two or three hours at a time and going to the coffee shop and writing a thousand words. And I would do that maybe for a month Mm -hmm. and then I wouldn't write for four months and then I would go back and do it. So it got written in these, these chunks of time, very regimented, had never written like that before, but I was also nearing 40 and I was like, I want to, I want a book. I want to publish a book. And I think (laughs) this is my book. So Yeah. Okay. So I want to know about when you decided that this was your book, but also (laughs) I love that you say that he would tell you, you have to write because my husband listens to this podcast. And so he'll hear this. And And he's still doing it. He's like, you have to, because I put my other work before my writing. I'm like, Oh, I need to answer these emails and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, exactly. He's (laughs) like, you need to write first and then you can do all the other stuff. So I'm still learning. As we all are probably. Yeah. But you have said like that the first sort of like third of Night Bitch poured out just from this place of like anger and frustration. Could you talk a little bit about what happened after that? Like when you got to the place where it was like it stopped pouring out, what did you do next? How did you work with that? Yeah, I would. I asked a lot of questions. I didn't know what to do next. Mm-hmm. And I sort of did some exploratory writing in different directions, which didn't feel right or good. You know, I was like, this, no, this is hokey. This is dumb. And so I think at that point, I probably thought, okay, 
is there a point toward which I can write? Instead of thinking, what's the next thing right in front of me? Where do I want to get to? And then letting letting the writing carry me, carry me toward that. So I kind of came up with a midpoint and I thought, okay, let's write. Let's write toward this. I also gave myself permission, you know, on days when I didn't know what to write. I think I had already come up with this idea of Wanda White and the book. And so some days I said, okay, you can just write an entry in Wanda White's book. If it's, you know, a thousand words long and it probably won't get in the novel, but it's you're, you're moving forward. So that was also really helpful. And some of those did wind up in the book. That's smart as like a being able to find a chunk that you could do in a short period of time. Right. And also have it be like, I'm looking forward to it. And it's also playful and fun. Yeah. Um, Again, it was just really important for me to give myself permission to like, you can have fun with this. It's okay. It's not just toil. And yeah. <laughs> That's great advice. So you you imagined an end um, midpoint and an end point. As you kind of wrote towards those points, did it change substantially as you were working on it? I know that uh, the editors didn't have big changes, right? Like, and they they mostly worked on the MLM scheme. Is that right? And yes, then- a double day. Yeah. When I sent it to my agent, she had me put it on a timeline. So go through it and actually get a calendar out and say, this scene happens here and here and here, which helped to make sure it all worked in actual time. It did not change that much. Yeah. Once it got to double day, some stuff was taken out. I I developed the MLM thread a little bit more. I do. I think a, a good lesson I take out of that experience is I wanted to just like get it out. I wanted to be done with it. I wanted to push it out. And I think some really strenuous revision would have helped it. And so for the next book, I want to, I want to be able to tell myself, you know, it's okay if, if I need a month to let it sit and not look at it and then come back to it. Yeah. That's super actionable advice. (laughs) It's so when you get to the end, what you think is the end of something, it's so hard to then like wrap your mind around like, okay, no, actually I have to go back and make a substantial revision. So So how did you find your agent? It's actually a funny story. And uh, so I had a collection of short stories I was going to publish with Curbside Splendor, which was a small press out of Chicago. And I worked, you know, with the editor, a couple editors there. We edited the whole collection. They sent me a contract and the very kind editor said, you know, I don't want you to sign this without an agent looking it over. And I know an agent who agents a lot of indie people so I could connect you with her. And I was like, sure. I mean, it was a very small deal. So she, she and I, she looked over my contract and as she was looking over my contract, the publisher folded. (laughs) So then sort of by default, then we were working together. That collection got put on the shelf and I was just kind of really demoralized. This was during those two years I wasn't writing. And so, I mean, I think I even remember like walking my son to daycare after it fell through and, you know, dropping him off and just being like, I'm just not going to have a book. And so that was also kind of 
what I was in before night bitch. I started writing night bitch, just this kind of like, I'm just going to be a mom. Like this isn't going to work out for me. This is my fate. Yeah. That's so interesting to hear. And also actually very, <laughs> very similar to my professional experience when shortly after my daughter was born. That's what I happened. Looked, I got a, a tenure track job that I thought I had, you know, wanted forever and that it was going to be so amazing. And yes. You know, it was going to be this like sense of freedom to like ask the questions I wanted to ask, you know, yada, yada. And then I took it and it was awful and I quit no. and I like, it was very messy. So I didn't know if I could get it. But, you know. Anyways, so Ugh. there's multiple losses happening at the same time. Right. There's like the transformation to motherhood and there's like, you're kind of wrestling with the fact that this press folded. Do you remember anything that helped you come back from that experience of the press folding and not publishing the stories separate from how you kind of moved through those early years of motherhood? I was really in crisis until I started writing Night Bitch. I mean, I was probably still in crisis when I was writing Night Bitch. Did I get out of crisis after? I feel like right now, how much later is it? Four years later, I feel like I'm out of Night Bitch now. And it's taken a really long time to work through it. And part of the working through it was the writing the book. So once you got your agent and you went on submission, can you talk a little bit about that? Again, probably not representative. I just had a very, yeah, great experience. I mean, you know, she sent it out to our first tier of editors. I think they were all mothers. And the first few responses came back, no, which she very gently gave me that news. I didn't have like a lot of expectations about the book because I'd been so disappointed before and I knew it was a weird book. So I was just sort of like, if anyone wants to publish it for any, you know, for anything, uh-huh. that would be great. Uh-huh. Um, but then after a few initial no's, there were two editors who were really interested and it happened really fast, maybe 10 days or something after it got sent out. And so um, I talked to both of the editors. One of them had a number of changes, had some sort of, she had some hesitations, I think on behalf of the publisher about it. You remember what her hesitations were? Like, well, you know, the title. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah. The name yeah. of the main character, because they're thinking about marketing and they're thinking about it sitting on a shelf face out of Barnes and Noble and you can't, do that with night bitch maybe. So she, yeah. So she had a lot of notes, but I, I totally understood them all, you know, like I, I didn't hold them against her or anything. Like I got what she was saying and, and perhaps I would have done a more rigorous edit with her. And then the other editor, she, she was younger. She wasn't a mom, but she totally got it. She got it. She got it a hundred percent. And she didn't want to change the title. Um, she said, you know, we can make it work. And we just clicked. We had a really good, you know, rapport immediately. So it was really fast. Like they preempted it and I had to make a decision right away. And we were off to the races. And how did it, what was that like at your house? <laughs> Gosh, well, it's really funny because I just started a new job at a speaking agency here in town and they have this beautiful office. And I remember being on the phone with my agent and I was standing in front of this huge window, like floor to ceiling window, like looking out over Iowa city. And I'm like, 
my life just changed really quickly. Like, you know, I'm back at work. Now I'm getting this deal. How did it change at home? I don't know. (laughs) The thing is, even if you get a book deal or a movie deal, you still have to like make your kid a quesadilla right after you get the fungal, you know, like. That's such a good quote. Yes. (laughs) There's still like a pile of laundry to fold. So yeah. And you got a movie deal, right? Yeah. And Amy Adams is playing Night Bitch. Yeah. I mean, and that (laughs) happened like very soon after the book deal, like 10 days after the book deal. Oh, my book agent was like, I would like to introduce you to your film agent. Um, I know it was really fast. And so then, I mean, I started talking to people then the actual like deal didn't get closed till later that year. But I mean, as the pandemic was happening, I was like talking to producers on the phone. It was a very surreal thing. Yeah. Yeah, Imagine was, did you help with the writing of the screenplay? Um, I wrote a version of it, which I'm really happy I got the chance to do. But then they brought on this amazing director, Marielle Heller, and she's a writer and director. It comes from the theater. She has these brilliant, beautiful films um, she's already made. And so she wanted to write it and had a vision for what she wanted. And I was like, well, yeah, obviously she should write it. So um, I'm glad I got the opportunity to do a version. And I'm also super happy that, you know, she had a vision and saw her vision through too. So if you didn't feel good about it, you probably couldn't say, but anything to say about what it's like to see, I mean, there's one level of seeing the idea in your head turn into a book and then to see it morph again. What is that like? And it's even weirder when the book comes from really directly from your own life and your own experiences. And then to go on set and see Amy Adams acting out something that happened in your life. I mean, it was really surreal, incredibly emotional. Like it brought up all of this. It was almost like therapy. Like it brought up all this stuff for me that I thought I had kind of laid to rest by writing the book. Like there was this one day we were at, we had been on set and then we were at the beach with some friends my husband, my son, and Seth said something very not, not enraging. And I got like so angry. I I was like, I am just going to walk down the beach until I'm in like Mexico. Like I just took off walking and we had been on set earlier that morning and like watching stuff. And I'm like, that's what's going on. Like something is going on anyway. You were asking, what was the question? You no, but you were seeing people act out this incredibly difficult time in your life. It, it's not surprising that that would yes. actually really and it's really stimulating. Right. And it's really hard then to watch the movie and form an opinion about it. I mean, I, like I said, I think Mari is an amazing filmmaker. And I think she realized a really beautiful, unique vision but like the question of whether I like it or not, I'm like, I don't know if I like, like, I'm in, it's in this very weird psychological space for me. So I think people will really like it. I think it's fun and extreme and genuine in all the ways I would hope it would be those things. I can't wait to watch it. Like, yeah. <laughs> waiting. I've been waiting for it to come. <laughs> I, how would you say that writing Night Bitch has changed you as a person or an artist 
or both? I do think it served as a sort of exorcism for me and a way for me to articulate all the things that had been going on for me that that were not spoken or weren't articulate, that were just these sort of sensations that had no words. And so, I, th- I mean, you write a book in order to become the person that can write the book. And so it did feel, I mean, I remember writing the last paragraph at the coffee shop and then just feeling, feeling somewhat transformed, like being in this moment of magic. But then there's the other thing of it being published and sharing it with a readership, which was, has been the best possible experience. I feel like I have found my community of women, you know, because I get, I still get messages on the daily from women who say, this is my story. How did you know? I've felt so alone. And that fills me with infinite joy, right? Because that's, I, I wanted that book when I was a new mother. So it's made me recenter writing. Um, because I think using writing as both an artistic tool, but also um, a kind of personal or psychological tool, like creativity is one way of approaching problem solving. And I think you can, you can look at artistic problems. You can look at personal psychological problems. I just think it's very powerful. It's really centered writing and imagination as this power that I'm claiming I can do whatever I want in that space. And that's pretty, a pretty radical idea for me. That's Rachel Yoder, author of Night Bitch. If for some crazy reason you have not read this book yet, get it at the link in the show notes immediately. And while you're there, don't forget to follow, subscribe, shower us with praise in the reviews, or if that's too much work, you can, of course, just give us a five-star rating. The internets tell me that this quote came from Thomas Fuller. It seems possible, but not certain. Supposedly, he wrote, the night is darkest just before the dawn. Keep going. <laughs>